Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 67. It is February 6th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, Pitcher Week rolls on. We will discuss discounted starting pitchers we like, also known as sleepers in some circles, and take a crack at breaking down this year's closer pool. Uh, but of course, we'd be remiss not to discuss the still pending, at the time of this recording at least, the potential blockbuster trade that should send Mookie Betts to the Dodgers along with David Price. We'll talk about that deal on this episode as well. Housekeeping first, we are available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you want to listen to podcasts. So if you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we'd really appreciate that. And tell your friends if you think they would like the show as well. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get a subscription 40% off at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Check out everything we just launched in our new draft kit and all the great coverage across all major sports. You know, I hope this deal doesn't get reversed or basically never processed as a result of some lingering concerns, but uh, Ken Rosenthal reporting kind of overnight Wednesday into Thursday. There's a hang-up in the uh, medicals with Brewster Gratterall, the prospect going from the Twins to the Red Sox as part of what would be a three-team deal. I think everyone knows by now everything that's involved, but Mookie Betts and David Price to the Dodgers, Alex Verdugo and Gratterall to Boston, and Kenta Maeda to Minnesota are the principles of that trade. And then there's a second trade with the Dodgers and Angels that we'll get to in just a minute that sort of hinges on all this falling into place as well. Uh, but just your overall reactions, now that you've had a couple of days to let this proposed trade really sink in, how do you feel about this for each of the three teams involved? I hated it for Boston. And I mostly hate it because they they paid down half of the deal for David Price. And I think if you pay down half of David Price's deal, it no longer becomes as much of a an underwater contract. I don't think anybody really wants to pay three years and $93 million for David Price. But if you're saying, would someone pay three years and $45 million for David Price? The same offseason that Dallas Keiko got 55? I think so. You know, I think somebody would do that. And if they wouldn't, it would they wouldn't do it by five million or something. We're talking about making that deal almost palatable. So if that deal is almost palatable, now you're talking about trading an at price uh, pun intended, I guess, <laughs> at price price with uh, an underpriced superstar, basically projected to be the second best player in the game. And what you're getting back is, I think. He's slightly above league average uh, for as a corner outfielder, Alex Verdugo, but he has character issues. He has injury issues. He doesn't have much patience, and he's projected to be uh, not to be an asset in in the outfield. So you're betting a lot on that plus hit tool that he's got, maybe elite hit tool, but that's about all you're getting for that. And then Bruce Dargraderall, who I like as a reliever, but in order to depend on a lot of production out of reliever, you need them to be uh, sort of a top 10, top 15 reliever over a three-year span. That's that, Those are the only relievers that put up four wins of value. There's only 10 to 15 players in any three-year three, three span, any 10 to 15 relievers in a three-year span that give up, that make you, they give you like four wins. If you get more like you know, three wins from him, which is why I think this why this deal has fallen apart, is they say, okay, we've now seen the medicals. We now know how exactly how injury prone he is. 
He also doesn't have great command and doesn't have a good changeup. But, you know, we thought maybe we could alter those given that he throws so hard uh, and he has a, a really good slider. We thought we could make him a – but these, these medicals say he's a reliever. Now we're getting – two or three wins out of a reliever and a league average corner outfielder for the second best player in baseball and a well-priced starting pitcher. So I think that's why the deal has been scuttled. I don't know who has to give up more. I think the Dodgers have to give up more. So I think they're going to have to find a, an extra piece. And I, honestly, that's how most of these deals go. There's usually another piece, like an, an A-ball guy, you know, there's a, a person you can dream on that's in the piece, in, in the trade, and that wasn't in this trade, which is kind of remarkable. So I don't think that they're going to give up any of their top five guys. They're not giving up Kybert Ruiz or Dustin May or any of those guys. But, you know, down down ballot on their thing, you know, their ninth or, you know, tenth best prospect, another arm to give the Red Sox a chance at getting a starter out of this. Yeah, I think that's what's going to have to happen to, to make this deal more, uh, to make this deal more even and once that happens i guess i could see why everybody's doing it um but uh, i got a lot of pushback for saying negative things about gratterall but you know i think this this the way this has turned out uh, you can see that um i was right well i think with gratterall like <laughs> <laughs> there the idea that he can't be a starter it, it's it's a question of whether or not he develops that changeup or some other third pitch. I mean, he could. That's true. I mean, he's young enough, but you kind of need the volume of the reps to get there, and he hasn't really shown that he can do that yet. Right. And my my assessment, as I thought more about the trade, was that you know maybe the Twins saw a path for that to happen, but they thought it was going to take a couple of years before he'd be ready to contribute to a playoff caliber rotation. And they said, you know what? Yeah, he can help us as a reliever right now. We actually have a pretty good bullpen. Let's go ahead and let someone else try and develop him as a starter. And if he turns into an elite closer, oh, well, we're getting Kenta Maeda. And they needed another starting pitcher. And they got one who's very affordable. And they're in a situation where because the Twins don't have the loaded pitching depth within the organization that the Dodgers have had for several years, I think Kenta Maeda's workload holds up all the way through September. Like the move to the bullpen to limit the innings and keep them from hitting incentive clauses. I'm not that's sure not, I, don't, that. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think they have a choice. I don't think they can, can well, afford that luxury. I think they can think pay about, Think about all the other people that they've signed. I mean, I know that they're not exciting names, but in particular, think about Rich Hill. They could actually pull the same shenanigans, the exact same shenanigans that the Dodgers pulled when Rich Hill comes, comes healthy and they say, ah, you know what, we'll keep your salary down, your flag in any way. Yeah, welcome to the bullpen, Kenta Maeda. See, I think if he's pitching well, they're not going to do that. Like, if he gives them a reason to, sure, they have a a path to continue getting value out of him in a different role. But they're relying on Michael Pineda, who's suspended to begin the season, has had some pretty nasty arm injuries. Homer Bailey, who could be near the end of his career. Yulis Chassin, who probably won't be on the roster after May 1st. And then a lot of soft tossers like Dobnik and Smeltzer. We've talked about Lewis Thorpe as a guy that... I kind of like as a deep sleeper, and Rich Hill is lingering there as well. We know with Rich Hill, it, it's it's complicated. It's good innings when he's healthy, but you just don't know really how many you're going to get. Uh, so I yeah, think there, there are a lot of questions about their depth that I think will prevent them from automatically doing that same thing with Maeda. I think there's a chance we see him get to 180 innings this year. 
Fair, fair. Uh, and uh, that has been holding him back. He's been 150 in a guy at most. Um, I just I don't see much upside in terms. Oops, sorry, I said it. Oh. I don't see I don't see much left in the projection in terms of oh they're going to tweak a pitch and this is going to happen. You know what I mean? Like at his age and with his history, I don't think they're going to find a mile per hour. You know. So I think that he's a more established, useful piece and that the everything that we could get out of the innings that's good, we're also going to give back with having to face the DH and having to face some superior lineups in the AL. Now, we're not talking a lot about the Mookie Betts aspect of this trade because he's a superstar and he's going to put up big numbers with the Dodgers the same way he was going to put up big numbers with the Red Sox, right? There's not a whole lot to to break down with that. But David Price going to the Dodgers is very interesting. I keep looking at that and saying, you know what? I probably wasn't going to have a lot of David Price if he stayed in Boston just because of health concerns. Uh, he's probably still a significant risk, of course, going to the Dodgers in that regard. But we've seen them manage their IL. We've seen them leverage their depth to give guys brief intermissions during the season as needed. And... I just think David Price has quietly won himself a few more very productive years with the move to Los Angeles. Yeah, and I, you know, uh, Rasball came out and said he dropped from about fourth to fifteenth in their in their metrics due to small changes in lineup effects. The Dodgers scored, I don't know, something like 15 fewer runs last year than the Red Sox, but that that's something. Um, I guess uh, leadoff hitters in the NL score less often than the AL. Probably has to do with the, the pitcher hitting ninth. And a slight part factor change. I, I can't imagine that the drop-off is that far, you know. And given the way the Boston Red Sox might run this year and who they else they might trade off, I, I would say that the I can't imagine that the runs in RBI totals are that different uh, from the to, you know from team to team. Now home runs is interesting. I did look at Mookie Betts' spray chart, and he does he did hit most of his home runs uh, down the line. Uh, in you know, and Fenway has this weird thing. Uh, he kind of pulled most of his home runs, and Fenway has this weird thing where. You'd think the 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 big monster, the big monster. My God, <laughs> what country am I from? What planet am I from? The anyway. German has shown up again. Jeez, uh, the green monster, the big <laughs> green monster. Um, that you'd think that it would uh, it would what is it called? Depress home runs. But I have them. Uh, once you hit a high drive, I have Boston as above average. In, ter- in terms of turning high drives into home runs. And I actually have L.A. as just, you know, one or two rungs below them. So maybe there's a little bit that. However, center field in L.A. is hugely friendly. And Mookie does hit a fair amount to center. I have, you know, like five to seven last year uh, home runs to center. And, uh, and so I think that um, Mookie, who has also shown the ability in the past to change his spray chart and has changed his spray chart to add more pull uh, when he used to be more of a push and spray guy, 
I think that he could take advantage of, of LA. So to me, no change. That's, I, what I, that's how I see it. That's, no that's how I've seen it. it the whole time. I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're going to have to worry about him seeing fewer green lights. I mean, we saw kind of a lower end outcome with steals last year. He was 16 for 19 with the Red Sox. I still think there's room for probably 25 bags at this point. Still runs really I guess. well. Gets on base like a ton. We talk about all the time about how poorly stolen bases age, though. I mean, I, a guy like that, I, I wouldn't project for much more than 20. It is kind of wild, though, when you look at his batting average fluctuations over the last four years. I mean, as low as 264 in 2017, as high as 346 in 2018, and then you got a 318 back in 2016 and a 295 last year. And he puts a ton of balls in play, under 15% strikeout rate in all six big league seasons so far. Yeah. I'm refreshing this chart here to look at the batted ball sprays, the differences. And, uh, in fact, one of the big dis- differences between 27 and ni- 2017 and 2019, which should be uh, a good sign for him going to L.A., is that he used to be more sort of strictly pull in 2017. And in 2019, he added this whole grouping of fly balls to center field. Um, so I think that's got to be seen as a good sign. Uh, fly balls to center field are often outs, but add a couple more feet in their home runs. So I I think this is a good sign that he's been more balanced in 2019 than he was in the past. You know, 2017 being, you know, such a pull season, that means to me, like, uh, he, he got more predictable, easier to defend, um, and easier to pitch to in some ways. Yeah, that's, that's funny that it's it's just been such a... For, for an elite player especially, it's been such a series of adjustments to the approach underneath for Mookie Betts. Uh, as far as price goes, though, do you buy the assessment that I put out there that he's in a much better place now and is a lot more interesting from a fantasy perspective with this trade? Yeah. I mean, to me, probably the two biggest winners in, in this whole trade thing are... David Price and Ross Stripling. That's who I see as the big winners. David Price just gets, you know, just give him an out a game. You know, I think that'll be huge. Give him a couple Giants, you know, starts. As bad as the Orioles are, if you have to pitch to the Orioles in Baltimore, it sucks. You know? The Giants are going to be otherworldly bad this year. I mean, they are just going to be putrid. And he's going to get, what, three, four starts against them? Yeah. It's going to be lovely. So I, I, I would I would say that he's going to move up big time in my next ranks. And then Stripling, it's, you know, it is a, a wrong way move in terms of the DH, but a right way move in terms of innings pitched. And I see him as a baby Ryu because... He just he told me himself that he's patterned his game after Hunjin Ryu and that he just wants to have four or five pitches that he throws that he can command and he can throw in any count. And in a in a sort of increasingly guess hitter game, I think that has been shown to to be useful. And now there's not a lot of people like it. That's why we like Lewis Thorpe. We thought he had the potential to command multiple pitches that were good and and, and throw at any time. 
Um, so, but Stripling has demonstrated that ability and has demonstrated skills in terms of strikeout percentage and strikeout minus walks. He's, I don't wouldn't say he's necessarily elite, but Mike Petriello had a tweet about how he's top 10 in ex-WOBA allowed in like the last two or three years. So I think Stripling wins big time in this trade. I think it's unfortunate that the Dodgers had to do that part. I mean, it really reads as a salary dump to to accommodate Mookie. And I think it's unfortunate they had to do that part. I don't I think they can I think they can recover on Jock Peterson. I think Matt Matt Beatty, plus obviously Mookie Betts, you know, Matt Beatty brings up the replacement level, the internal replacement level. And Mookie Betts is a superior player. You're fitting six, six and a half wins into one roster spot. You know, that's that's superior to having a Jock Peterson. But uh, Ross Stripling was a bit of the glue. So they're going to have to depend on guys like Tony Gonsolin a little bit more. And I'm not sure how much more I, I'm going to push Tony Gonsolin because it's just innings pitch projections in, in L.A. are terrible. But uh, I think we're going to see more of Tony Gonsolin this year. Yeah, definitely a guy that I'm more interested in now for NL only leagues as kind of a bottom of the rotation, two to three dollar dart in the end game because as a reliever he'll be useful when he starts. He may have some spots where you're pretty comfortable with him, but if everybody's healthy, it's Kershaw, Bueller, Price, Julio Urias, Dustin May, and they could use Alex Wood a lot like they've used Alex Wood in the past and Ross Stripling in the more recent past where he's that guy that really swings the most between back of the rotation and long man out of the bullpen. Alex Wood? Yeah, as long as he's healthy too. That's that's the well, qualifier there, of course. He's also the guy without an option. So, you know, they're going to he's going to be up all year. And in fact, in some ways that makes him riskier in certain leagues. In certain leagues, you can you can put a guy on, his, on the bench if he's been demoted, but you can't otherwise. And in those leagues, Alex Wood is a little bit more risky because he just may be a reliever for long stretches of the year. Um, whereas Tony Gonsolin and Dustin May are either up and starting or down. Uh, Gonsolin's a little bit hard to figure out. He could actually be up and relieving too. Yeah, I think with May, they want to keep him stretched out and yeah. they want him to start. I think with Gonsolin, they're going to tinker more with how they use him. He's also found money. I mean, this guy was nobody until they went to pitch design on him. And I have a long conversation with him about that that I haven't used yet. But, I mean, they, they've, they basically found every pitch. He was, he was, not, he was a reliever in A-ball. And then they, they like, you know, made him. <laughs> it's a weird way to think of it because obviously the player had to do the work. But, you know, they, they, they brought together like a, a new – breaking pitch and introduce the split finger and change his arm slot a little bit and boom. I wish the principles that major league teams now use to develop pitchers in pitching labs were applied to you know, writers and podcasters. I, just, <laughs> I want somebody else to bring out some previously untapped potential in me, even if it doesn't exist. Like someone should be able to do that. I'm hoping I'm hoping the athletic has has actually been like that for me because you, different outlets do demand different things of their writers and have different overarching themes and overarching um, values. And the one thing that the athletic has always been about is, you know, don't worry too much about getting a piece out, you know, make it bigger, 
you know, think bigger, talk to more people, put it together in a bigger way, collaborate with somebody, you know, and um, I don't know. I think it, I think it's been good for me. I I could have I could have been cranking out Fangrass pieces my whole life. But you can, I think, you can take chances here for sure. Yeah, things have changed a little bit here, so that's that's been a positive. So my arm angle is is slightly different. Still got a hip problem though, according to every test you've been uh, given so far. Oh, right? dude, I just went back to to get some muscle activation technique yesterday. The the thing that Boyder does, Matt Boyd, and I feel so good. I I really do. I feel so good. My Achilles stopped hurting. I can almost touch my toes like the first time in my life. And, uh, and apparently I retain all of the range of motion that we got in the last session. So I've got 90, 90 degree range of motion in both of my hips. And, uh, there's still some ankle and hip stuff to, to keep working on, I think maybe, but I feel really good. And I busted out, uh, uh, max, my max six mile run on a nine ten pace. Uh, and I can do my three and a half mile run on an eight, eight fifteen pace. So I'm going to run this half marathon. Yeah. You're crushing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty good. Although it is funny to think that the eight fifteen pace, I'm like, I'm running about as fast as I can. If I ran one mile as fast as I could, I think it might be like seven miles, seven minutes or something. Those people who do like two hour marathons are running like four and a half minute miles for a marathon it's really amazing when you start to get into distance running to realize how much faster elite competitors are in they that could, than you are yeah it's crazy. i could sprint and they'd beat me yeah there it's was crazy there was an advertisement i think it was a couple of years ago now in new york on one of the subway platforms and it was an olympic marathon runner on like a digital led board running down the platform and people were trying to just run and keep up, and it just he's just dusting them. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's not like it's Usain Bolt running the, the you know, right. running the hundred. It, it's, yeah. it's a guy running his marathon. This pace, is mile twenty four, just holding people, <laughs> just just crushing them, running down the platform. So, yeah, and, and you kind of touched on this. We'll kind of close the book on the Angels Dodger stuff real quick. Uh, you mentioned Stripling on the move. It's Stripling and Jock Peterson, uh, and potentially. Andy Pages. I'm pretty sure it's Andy Pages. That's where I'm at. Be weird if it was Pages. It'll be very weird if it's Pages in this case. Um, And then we'll have some backstory we haven't heard about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And then the Dodgers side, Luis Renjifo is going to the Dodgers and maybe other prospects. That's kind of hung up right now on Jock Peterson's arbitration hearing. Um, I think there could be something going on with the other trade also. Like that has to be finalized before this one can be finalized. But you mentioned Stripling as a big winner. You know, Jock Peterson maybe a slight downgrade, but not a massive one. I mean, in the AL, the lineup's going to turn over more. The uh, you talked about the the effects of being a leadoff hitter in the AL versus the NL, so he'll get the same kind of little bump that Mookie might be getting bounced down for. So I don't know. Like this is a pretty interesting sub-trade because we don't know the full scope of what the Dodgers are getting back beyond Renjifo. Yeah, but by my StatCast park factors, it is a downgrade to, to right field. Uh, however, those were implemented before last year. The, uh, I researched them before last year, and last year the a- a- Anaheim dropped the wall in right field. Yeah, they lowered it for uh, for Cole Calhoun and Shohei Otani. Yeah, so I would actually, uh, and, and like 
literally, if you look at Jock Peterson's spray chart, he like literally hits all his home runs. I'd say he hit 70% of his home runs last year in the place where they dropped the wall. So he fits the park well. Yeah, I think so. He's, I mean, he's he's kind of a boring hitter in terms of just the things that I was saying earlier. It's like he's a little bit easier to pitch to. You know what he wants to do. He wants to yank it, and he wants to yank it hard. However, he has decent play discipline, and he only swings at the pitches that he can drive for the most part. He doesn't. He has a pretty good hit tool too. So, you know, I I, I think maybe thirty six was his peak in terms of home runs, especially with his playing time, and especially with the fact that. The the ball was different, and the fact that the Angels have Joe Adele waiting. So there's always the chance that something funky happens with playing time. But I also could see him playing first base after they finally buy out Albert Pujols. My God. <laughs> yeah, he's still, still there, still kicking. Um, still there. I mean, I think with the amount of time that Justin Upton missed last season, too, this is a short-term problem for Joe Adele. It hurts his 2020 redraft value. Yeah. If Upton, you know, is going to miss a lot of time or any of the regulars in the outfield go down with a significant injury, I think there's a really good chance that Adele gets promoted then as opposed to playing, you know, Brian Goodwin every day. Like that's definitely an option the Angels are still going to consider, uh, but it is the kind of thing that makes me less excited about taking a flyer on Adele in the late rounds. Good Goodwin's a good fourth outfielder and he may sneak himself into some time um, here or there, uh, to be relevant in short stretches. But I think you're right that, like, if it was a major injury, um, they would. Rather, I mean, look at what Goodwin did last year. In 458 plate appearances, he had 17 homers, seven stolen bases, and hit 262. That's definitely relevant in AL only. And I could see spending a reserve pick on him just in case. I mean, there's also the opportunity. There's also the chance that Upton. The two people are hurt, and Adele has to come up, and Goodwin has to play. So, um, you know, he's he's on the cusp of being interesting, and it's nice that he has a little bit of speed. And I think last year was uh, an eye opener uh, for some people. Uh, but he's also twenty nine, and and it's probably going to be his best year. Um, and they obviously just got Jock Peterson. So, I think we've uh, I think we've discussed this one to depth. To, yeah, to, to all the way. We we does it hurt it. anybody in the Anaheim rotation, Patrick Sandoval, I think, is now the seventh starter. But when you're having a six-man a six rotation, the seventh starter is going to be pretty pretty relevant. So he's still semi-interesting. Um, I don't know. The Angels are probably would be a lot better with this. Yeah, uh, it gives them that length they need to execute a six-man rotation. It's going to take far more than six starters for them to make it through the season. Yeah, exactly. The particular six they're going to try and begin the year with. Let's move on to James Paxton. He's going to miss a lot of time to begin the season due to a microscopic lumbar discectomy to remove a paradiscal cyst uh, or back surgery, if you're just like a normal person and want to just call it that. Uh, Interestingly enough, they do have some depth, of course, with the Yankees. I think Jordan Montgomery is the guy that's going to get the first crack at filling that rotation spot. Um, but that also assumes that, you know, he's healthy and, and effective this spring. I think he has to compete to earn the job. Domingo Herman, of course, suspended. Jonathan Loisiga is kind of interesting. And maybe a few weeks into the season, I wonder if someone like Davey Garcia could actually emerge to be an option if they don't get what they're looking for from Montgomery. 
I bet you it becomes a sort of de facto bullpen situation. I bet you they want to start Montgomery in the minor leagues. And so for the beginning part of the season, Montgomery is down and maybe Davey Garcia makes the team or maybe Luizaga makes the team, but he's not considered like a five-inning guy. He's maybe, we're going to start games with him. Maybe it's one inning, maybe it's three innings because he's just so injury-prone. You just I don't think that they're gonna, you know, be like, hey, five innings from you today. So and they have the bullpen to to be able to handle kind of an opener strategy situation. Um, you know, maybe they actually have the opener, Chad Green, and then maybe the Weisiger pitches three innings and then they go back to the bullpen. But they, they can do that for a while. Uh and then if Montgomery is dealing in the minors, then he comes up. So I still don't think that Montgomery is a is you know, I'd say probably like thirty or forty percent likely to, to to open the camp, which is more than open the open uh, camp with the team, or uh, what is it? Open from camp, break camp with the team. That's it. Uh, if if he's, I think he's about thirty to forty percent, which is higher than what's before, but it's 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 lower than maybe some people would would consider. I think what's most interesting here is what you do with Paxton because you know three to four months. That's all of spring. At least it's beginning of February. So it's February, March, April, May. So let's let's push it out. So he's he's going to come out June. That's still four months. It's four. Yeah, it's four months of its early June. I think you have to wonder. Okay, is he going to give you like regular starts because he was able to get through a rehab assignment and get fully stretched out, or are you going right. to get a couple of weeks where he's throwing forty five pitches, then he's throwing sixty, then he's throwing seventy five. Like you know, if you your first two weeks back are, are stretching out and he's going you know, two, three, four innings, basically being an opener, uh, and it's gonna chip away at his chances to get wins, that's gonna make him a little more frustrating to use. He's to me a guy that he was not on some sort of like don't draft list. I've seen some people pop that out there on Twitter, like, oh yeah, this is this is why I don't draft James Paxton. I'm not on that. I, I think there's obviously a lot of injury concerns, a lot of stuff with the forearms too. I talked about this at first pitch Arizona maybe two years ago now. Like he had one, he got hurt doing uh, PFP drills and like fell down and hurt his forearm and just dumb, dumb injuries like on top yeah. of these like chronic weird things. It doesn't strike me as super athletic, <laughs> right? Like there, there was like a clumsy quality to some of the injuries on there, which, you know, yeah. he's pitching in the big leagues and I'm sitting in a chair talking about baseball. So I, I'm, I'm below James Paxton on the clumsiness ladder, um, which is probably the safest All place right. for me to be. Let's do some would you rathers. Um, I'm looking in the late sixties on my rankings, Masahiro Tanaka. I'd rather have Tanaka. Okay, I got a little lower. Adrian Hauser. <sighs> that's that's probably a good place to put the line. I I, I do tend to lean towards the injuries are going to find me, so don't buy into injuries, especially when right, it comes don't to a buy pitcher, an injured player. Yeah, I mean, like a, a position player would be generally where I would take that shot. And so many of my leagues don't even have IL spots. If I had IL spots, Paxton. In leagues where I don't, I'd rather just take the healthy guy and go Hauser. And just take a shot, like maybe three inning, three months in, you don't even have Hauser anymore, but you had that roster slot that you could play with, and Paxton was just sitting there. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the settings. Skills. I think settings are pretty big, but I think right around there, I have got like Hauser, Arietta, Aaron Saval, uh, Kyle Gibson. You know, 
they're like good players and I don't want to slag on any of them, but they, you know, when Paxton, if Paxton comes back and pitches four months of Paxton, you'd rather have that um, than sort of like, okay, guys all year. But if it just sogs up a roster spot and then you just, I played a lot of leagues actually that have unlimited deal. So I'm a little bit more pro Paxton as a stash, but you know, if I have the choice of like someone like Mitch Keller, I think is interesting because it's like I might not have Mitch Keller by the time Paxton comes back. However, I might have ditched Mitch Keller for another uh, player that's interesting. However, if I have unlimited DL, I draft Paxton, I miss out on Keller, but I pick up whoever I would have dropped Keller for when I decided I don't want Keller, I want this other flavor of the month. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about this morning. Tout Wars is a league I play in that has the unlimited IL spots, and I play in the 15-team mixed auction. So I was thinking, okay, what would I throw at Paxton bid-wise if the auction were today? At least four or five bucks. I mean, because I I can IL him, and then in a 15-team league, I feel good enough about the waiver wire pitchers relative to a guy like Hauser, uh, who I would take if I didn't have unlimited IL spots, I feel like I could find something kind of like a Hauser on the wire in a league like that and then have that chance on Paxton later where it's really not costing me that much. And if things do take a turn for the worst, I have the opportunity in that league to actually redeem Paxton for 10 times his fab value. So we have a $1,000 fab budget. If I paid 5 bucks for him in the auction, he has a setback or something, Whoa, I get $50 you get in 10 fab. Times it. Yeah, I get 50 bucks in fab back for oh, it. Oh, because so. it's 1000 Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it just scales it up. It's but. basically the same. As getting, yeah, in labor, you get your money back. That's interesting. Yeah, you get your money back uh, if, you, if he just misses the year. And um, I think it's interesting in labor to think of it this way. Like, let's say I was going to take a $1 reliever in... Uh, let's say I was going to take three relievers, and I... I, I hate this because I know people that play labor are listening. <laughs> but I, I'll run through it. I'm not saying I'm going to do it. But it would be interesting. It's like, okay, I was planning on taking like maybe three relievers. And one of the relievers is probably going to be a dollar reliever. And dollar relievers are not super exciting. It's just kind of a, a holding spot, a player that could be a closer. And there's probably going to be some relievers on the wire that are just about the same as my dollar reliever. So instead of the dollar reliever, I throw... some X money at Paxton in that reliever slot. I DL him for the, and wait on him for the second half and go get that dollar reliever. That's just about the same as the dollar reliever. I would have, I would have drafted in the draft, right? You draft a reliever in the reserve rounds instead who you can take in and out of your lineup. So if that reliever, and I got a lot of value out of Cam Bedrosian last year as a reserve reliever where he just came in and I, I actually did some sort of streaming like that where like I, I, I like would start Dylan C some weeks when he had good matchups and then not start him because he was in my reserve and put Bedrosian in instead. So there's some ways to finagle your particular settings. So I would say that Paxton doesn't belong exactly like you said, does not belong on a no draft list. There are ways to, to look at your settings and figure out if he's actually useful. But if you have like two DL slots and you're going to come out of the draft putting a guy in that DL slot. Like I'm thinking about my pitchfork league with the, the pitchfork music guys. We have like four or five bench slots and like two DL slots. Ouch. Yeah. It's a little That's going to be hard to hold on to Paxton all year. 
Yeah, and if you think about them in you know leagues like the NFBC, where you have seven reserves and, and no, no IL spots, like yeah, you're. I, I, this is a lesson that some people have to learn firsthand. Like you get crushed waiting on injured players in that league. And so again, bad. in more injuries are going to find you after the draft anyway. Right. Paxton is right on that borderline, like talent-wise, where you have a difficult time cutting him. If this injury happens right before opening day, and it's a four to six week injury, which is kind of roughly or four to eight week injury, then, which is kind of like what we're talking about right now, the injury optimism once you already have him gets even stronger because you think, oh, I committed, I, I used right. the sixth round pick to get him. I really don't want to just cut my sixth round pick. It's one of the hardest things about playing in leagues without IL spots, especially the NFBC, but any league with no IL spots forces those tough decisions. Ultimately, though, I think that is a more fun and challenging way to play fantasy baseball. And I know some people out there are going to say, no, you're punishing me because I'm having injury bad luck. It's like, no, everyone has to deal with this that, when it comes around to them. Like it, It's a tough decision. I'm not it's saying the, it's easy. It's the major point of chaos in real-life baseball and in in fantasy baseball. No matter what, you know, like I could have won labor last year if Severino was healthy. It's I'm not whining about it. I am. But <laughs> <laughs> but it's just how things work. You know, injury is the biggest deal. And I don't I don't believe anybody who says they can predict injury. I don't even believe anybody who, who can really project innings. <laughs> uh, so that that whole that whole bit has been difficult for me from the beginning. And also, what's the over under on me switching from DL to IL? Like how many years is it gonna take? Five and a half. <laughs> Oh, man. All right, let's get to some sleepers, huh? Yeah, it's minus 110 on both sides, by the way. So you will pay a VIG if you want to bet on that with me. <laughs> You're screwed either way. The house always wins. Yeah, I'm, I'm winning this as uh, the person taking these bets. But yeah, sleeper starters. Uh, I kind of thought about this a little bit after we signed off on Tuesday. Uh, you mentioned Spencer Turnbull as a guy that he had quite a bit higher than I did. And, and he's just great because he's cheap, right? Like Guys like that that you can throw a late dart at. Kind of wait and see what happens for a few starts and potentially get 10 maybe $15 in value, maybe more in some cases, uh, if everything falls into place. So let's start with Turnbull. Like, What is it that you like about him as a cheap flyer? Uh, since I started with stuff and, 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 and command, he, he just basically had the almost exact same stuff and command numbers as Herman Marquez. That's a little bit complicated by the fact that Herman Marquez has different movement numbers on his breaking balls, home and away. So there is a possibility that Rockies pitchers get dinged on the stuff number. I may have to look into that one. Uh, but just overall, seemed very similar to Herman Marquez, except that he has a really nice home park for the most part. And then on top of that, one of the reasons I like Spencer Turnbull is he has a lot of pitches. And the reason I like having a lot of pitches is, A, you can fall into that Ryu, Greinke, um, you know, we've been saying Thor, Stripling. You can fall into that grouping where you have a lot of pitches, you command them, you throw them, nobody knows what's coming. That's good. Uh, the other thing is it also gives you more lottery tickets in terms of, oh, this spring he tweaked his X and now he's great, you know? So... You know, what's it going to be? Does he make his changeup better? Does he make his this better? Does he make his that better? Who knows what it's going to be? But he has basically more chances uh, to, to improve than someone who throws a fastball and slider. So that's sort of where, yeah, if, if you have those weapons already, 
you're not buying blind and just bring it back to like Brewster Gratterall for a moment. Brewster Gratterall developing a third pitch is kind of like Frankie Montes starting to throw a splitter. Like it actually, I thought that's that's the best case scenario. But how many other people have you said? Oh, if only had a changeup. There's like the thousands of pitchers that that are relievers now that never developed that changeup that you just don't think of, and you're like, but Frankie Montas did it. Yes, Frankie Montas did it. Yeah, most good relievers with another pitch would be good starters. That's why they're relievers. Like it, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like a, man. We're really slagging on relievers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, relievers. I love you. You talk to me so much. You're you're really nice people. No, you guys are great. You just have funky <laughs> deliveries, and you don't usually have a third pitch. Like that's not your fault. Let me look at uh, his also his granular stuff numbers here real quick uh, to to get to on Turnbull. Uh, the slider is his best is his second best pitch, which I like. Uh, the sinker is his best pitch, uh, and the changeup is good, and the curveball is also above uh, well, by stuff. So, yes, his forcing fastball is not his best pitch, but he has a slider, sinker, curveball, and change that are all above average by, by stuff. And so that's four pitches that he can play with. If he turns the four-seamer, which he threw a lot, and that was actually what sort of reduced his upside uh, potential <laughs> twice. Uh, his results probably what what made his results a little bit less exciting were was that his his four seam fastball is not great and he used it a lot. What if he tweaks that so that the four seam fastball is more a pitch he throws high in the zone for strikes, and he uses the sinker to establish strikes more often? That could be or the slider, which he commands well and has good stuff. Maybe he uses that to establish strikes more often. This that is a story that is being told all around baseball. That's just, that's why half the Reds were better last year. You know, just throwing the fastball high in the zone for whiffs. So, you know, I think the the tweaks are there. Uh, you know, people in Detroit tell me that the, the coaching staff, in terms of the pitching coaching staff, is good, even though from the outside it looks like Detroit doesn't know what they're doing. Um, I think Turnbull could take a leap forward. And, and, you know, I have him in the group where, like, Mitch Keller, Josh James, Dylan Cease... Sandy Alcantara, you know, I have him in the group of like, hey, these are fun players that could break out. He's probably going to cost less than all those other ones. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely going to be the case. I would be stunned if he was inside the top 300 overall of any drafts. I just think he's kind of a an afterthought in most mixed leagues at this point. Uh, there's a guy that comes up in a lot of your pieces. If you kind of go back over the last two years or so, Sandy Alcantara. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. curious to know, are you still in on him as a guy that has that potential payoff still to come. Here's an interesting comp just based on, on stuff and, and command. Sandy Alcantara, Alcantara has a 109 stuff number, 99 command. AJ Puck has a 109 stuff number, 98 command. Uh, I just, I find that interesting. Um, Josh James who I have ranked near him has 119 stuff and 88 command. And we talked about whether or not 90 represents the sort of minimum level of command. Dylan Cease, who's right there, 112 command, 90 command, uh, 112 stuff, 90 command. So a lot of those guys that are around there have bigger flaws. Like Alcantara, I think has a high floor and late last season when he ditched the four seam and went back to the sinker, which is, kind of reverse of what other people are doing he had a really good end of the year and as much as his secondary stuff is not the most exciting stuff you know around 
starting with velocity is huge. And if you want to see something interesting, go to Jeff Zimmerman's page today and look at uh, all the pitchers and how they do uh, when they when their fastball drops below 94. He's got these graphs where he graphs basically one person's fastball between, you know, you know, 90 and, and 98, like how they get how many swing strikes they get based on the velocity of their fastball. And there's like every story is almost the same. They're okay. They're okay. And anything above 94 is great. And that's a, that's a piece of research that's been around for a while. Uh, and so the fact that Alcantara starts with so much velocity just makes everything better and just makes him a better bet. And this is part of why I'm nervous about Lance Lynn. He averaged 94.2 last year. Before that, he averaged 92 and 93. He had his best year averaging 94.2, which means he had threw the most fastballs over 94 that he ever had in his life. These things are linked. Now, if you age him at all, and he averages 93.8 next year, there's your progression. Yeah, he's also been able to put up decent numbers in the past, though, without that increased fastball velocity. Like, he's he's survived without that weapon before. Yeah, it's true. He survived, but some of the ranks need him to thrive. Interesting. So, uh, and, and then the granular stuff numbers on Alcantara are also interesting because... He had this breakout when he went from the four seam to the sinker, and his stuff number on the sinker is 128. His stuff number on the four seam is 93. So he basically took his worst pitch and stopped throwing it and went to his best pitch and started throwing more. Boom. Smart adjustment. Yeah. So a little bit of that Max Freed situation where maybe he's underrated by his overall stuff number because he you know, made some changes on the hood. That's, I think, going to be the source of my piece for tomorrow. I'm going to try and find more Max Freeds by looking at late uh, pitching mix changes. Well, let's try to stay outside the top 300 in terms of ADP. Who else is kind of catching your eye late right now? Yeah, well, there's, you know, when I when I get, when I'm looking for late sleepers, I'm just looking for stand standouts in any direction, either a standout stuff number or a standout command number. So, you know, just kind of scanning through Nick Pavetta still has the same stuff number as Dylan Cease, and his command number was not as bad as I thought it would be. I don't know what it is, if it's sequencing, body language, you know, head, you know, head case situation, defense behind him. Uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but there's still potential in Nick Pavetta. Um, and it's so funny cause I was in on him and he had an okay year. And then I was like, I'm not sure he's any better than that. And I was out on him and he had the bad year and now I'm back in on him, which proves that every pitcher has their price. <laughs> um, uh, Cal Quantrill is actually interesting because he's average at both stuff and, and command. Um, Dustin May has otherworldly stuff and just above 90 command, but I think he's going to be on a lot of people's lists. Um, but uh, Brad Peacock uh, showed up, and I wonder, who do you think is going to be the fifth starter in Houston? I've been putting chips on Josh James. He was the guy I was going to bring yeah. to the conversation. He's going just out to the top 400 right now. It's Verlander, Grinky, McCullers, or Keedy looks pretty safe as the four, and then you're right, the fifth spot, Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, Peacock, 
Austin Pruitt's Pruitt. on the depth chart, and then Josh James. I'm using the depth chart over at, at Rotowire, and I mean the difference between five and nine on that list is nothing. And in terms of stuff. Josh James versus Brad Peacock would probably be the debate for who has the best stuff of those five. But James, by far, at least by the stuff metric, but um, uh, but James also has that command issue, which was pretty easy to see. At that price point, though, like we're talking one of your last pitchers or even a bench pitcher in a lot of circumstances, I'm fine taking on that risk. Like if if it clicks, I think there's a ton of strikeouts that are coming down the pike i mean we we're seeing that already like even with the poor command josh james misses a ton of bats and if you get yeah. him up to 160 innings that might be enough for him to strike 200 guys out it's absurd. i mean he's close to i mean he's not glass now but he could be that kind of pitcher where he just no he doesn't have great command but he just throws stuff past everybody yeah that that's that's within the range of outcomes that I see with him anyway. So, And Pruitt just seems like boring glue guy. Yeah, and, and if if they see him as a boring glue guy, then that probably makes me think twice. Whereas if some other team had tried to stash him away, then I probably wouldn't care at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he could he could be like a Ryan Yarbrough type where he's he's useful because he comes in after Lance McCullers throws you know, three super high stress innings and Pruitt gets a win with three boring innings. That could definitely happen. Speaking of McCullers, he's not as cheap as some of the other guys we're talking about. He's got an ADP right inside the top 200 right now. I want him to be healthy and productive, but what do you expect from him? I mean, do, you, do you trust him enough to, to draft him in that spot? I don't really like drafting returners from Tommy John usually because there's there seems to be just so much getting the dust off kind of like I drafted Pineda coming off his surgery and he just never came back like what you're talking about it's like drafting an injured person almost like they're they're not technically injured but like how's their recovery going to go what's going to happen when they actually step to the mound every five days and and try to do it the regular way are they going to have the command he doesn't you know McCullers doesn't have great command to begin with. So, like, if there is a problem with command, like, what's it going to look like? Um, so I would normally be kind of out on him. But he missed all of 2019 and some of 2018. So I don't know. Somehow that kind of – I do know there's some research that says the longer that you, you take off, uh, the longer that you kind of um, – if you like, if you push Tommy John recovery to fourteen months rather than eleven or twelve months, that you have better outcomes. So there is there is some research behind what I'm saying, but there's something about the fact that he's had so long that I'm like, hey, maybe he's just ready to go. Yeah, I mean, they're still going to be very careful with his workload, but I think the Brewers have been doing that thirteen, fourteen months instead of yeah. trying to max it out and, and hustle someone back at twelve. Indians did that too, yeah. I mean, you might as well do what's best for long-term health and performance. It's kind of a no-brainer. Um, but I think you you mentioned Michael Kopech on the either Tuesday episode or at the end of, of last week. And he's another guy. Like, he made it back. Well, he didn't make it back. He didn't pitch in 2019. Because he didn't make it back, he's had that long layoff as well. I know you like him a lot based on stuff. I've always kind of seen just like a Noah Syndergaard sort of 
similarity in just yeah. physical appearance, but also just in, in demeanor and, and velocity and some of the things he mm. does on the mound. Like, is it all going to come together for, for Kopech this year? Is he a guy that you will have a lot of places? I think that was something you maybe hinted at on a previous episode, but is he definitely one of your guys this year? Yeah, I, it's interesting to think about him versus Dylan Cease. Like, Dylan Cease is healthy. Dylan Cease needs a little bit of a tweak to his fastball. Obviously, he always needs command, but Dylan Cease also is going to have Grandal behind the plate, uh, helping him out. Uh, whereas Kopech, you know, are they going to start him with the big league squad? Are they going to start him in the in the minors? Uh, Kopech, you know, are there adjustments in Kopech's future that, you know, like Dylan Cease pitched last year, so he knows, uh, I was cutting my fastball too much. I know that he knows it, and he'd probably been working on that during the offseason. Kopech hasn't really done that thing where he's hit the big leagues, the big leagues shows him he needs to make an adjustment, and he makes it, you know? So I guess it's a technical way of saying, like, uh, there, there are adjustments in Kopech's future, and we just don't know if he can do if he can make them. So I think I would have Cease a little bit ahead, but both of them, to me, are just fascinating sky's-the-limit arms. And I can't think of a better way to use your last draft slot on a pitch on a pitcher like that that may break camp with their team and just has all that upside. Mackenzie Gore, Nate Nate Pearson, Dustin May, Michael Kopech, Dylan Cease, like those guys are the type of players that can win you a league because you drafted them last and they came in. Uh, the you just have to not fall into the the thing of like, what we're talking with Paxton is like, how long are you going to hold on to them if they're not with the big league squad? Right. You can only take so many chances like that in those limited roster spot situations we were describing earlier. Uh, Nate Pearson's probably the cheapest of all the young starters that you mentioned. And I think he's got a pretty limited number of, of highly talented obstacles blocking him in Toronto. And I just... I wonder like, if, if he's going to get moved through AAA pretty quickly. I think he got a handful of starts there at the end of last season. Is he an early first-half call-up, maybe even a late April call-up for this Toronto team? Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a guy who throws 100, driveline guy, has been working on his secondary stuff, a little bit of an injury uh, situation in the past, but they've, they've tried to uh, increase his innings. I mean, I, I think... Um, I think he's really interesting. And for me, like Matt Schumacher wasn't even on my rankings. Um, uh, Ryan Bowrooke was going to be a lefty reliever until he added uh, a bunch of velocity and then immediately got hurt after adding the velocity. So I don't think that those are much uh, of an obstacle. Anthony Kay, to me, is is like a not super exciting, just sort of up and down guy. You know, um, and so to me right now, it goes Rourke or Ryu, Rourke, Anderson, Thornton, Bull Rookie. I guess I mean, maybe Shoemaker's in there nominally, but, you know, Shoemaker, Thornton, Bull Rookie. So and then Kay's obviously the next one up, but really it's Pearson. And who does he have to overcome? He has to overcome Shoemaker and Bull Rookie and Thornton and. As much as I like Thornton, I think there's the other two or I'm not that into. So, yeah, Pearson's interesting. He's probably not going to break camp with the team, so it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit more of a, a stash and 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 wait 
kind of situation. Uh, but it may not take that long. It could be on the same sort of schedule as somebody like a Luis Patino, who's probably the guy after Mackenzie Gore. I think Mackenzie Gore might actually break camp with the team because the you have to think about this. AJ Preller's job is on the line pretty soon. Yeah, patience uh, in the in the ownership group is probably starting to run out. Even even though he's doing a great job piling up young talent, eventually they have to win. You, yeah, you got to win games and, and get results. So he's he's signed. He's only signed through twenty twenty two. So he needs to at least go five hundred this year. All right. So let's think about Gore this way for a second. He was right around a hundred innings between high A and double A last year. I think it was one hundred one to be exact. How many innings can they reasonably have him throw in twenty twenty? I use kind of a 20% thing. I, th- I know it's a it's an old school one. And in fact, someone asked a- Alex Anthopoulos at some point why it seems that teams just increase innings by about 20%. And he said, nobody knows. <laughs> that's that's not a good <laughs> answer, but it's an honest answer. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's about 20, 25%. So I think they could go to 120, 130 innings. And I'd like to see, let's look at Paddock. Paddock had 140 after a 2018 that had 90. So he's probably on the on the pushing it end. Uh, a little bit complicated by the fact that maybe he would have had more than 90 if he wasn't coming off a, a surgery. Right. Uh, but uh, I think he could maybe get to that, that level. 120, 130 to 140, somewhere 125. I, I'd put the over under 125 for Gore. Okay, so 125 is the number. If he breaks camp with the team and all those innings come in San Diego, it's you know it's Gore plus someone else on your roster filling in around his in- inevitable absences. Yes, you'll miss weeks. He'll he'll maybe even be demoted around the All Star break to you know mess with his service time and and uh, whatever have him you know miss a couple starts or whatever. Um, but um, I think he could break camp with the team. He seems pretty polished. Uh, one thing I worry is that uh, the changeup is his best secondary pitch, but Paddock has obviously shown uh, that there's still, a, if you can throw the changeup to both sides of the plate and, and to both handedness, uh, you can still kind of, Luis Castillo. I would say that there are fewer and fewer, fewer people with a changeup as their out pitch, as their best pitch. That is becoming a, a, a dying breed. Yeah, but, but uh, Gore seems to kind of uh, have good enough. Uh, breaking balls to, to make it all work, and everyone's really excited about him. I'm really excited about Luis Patino because he's more of today's game where high spin, high velocity, crazy breaking balls, um, ready to go. But I do admit that Patino uh, could have a bit of Lamette around about him in terms of downside. Uh, but, you know, hey, people have Lamette in their top 50, so. Yeah, Lamette, you know, you know what came up this week after we talked about him on Tuesday is I was looking at the Baseball Savant player page and the way pitches are broken down by StatCast is pretty different. Like the StatCast system has him throwing five different pitches, although one of them is a changeup and he threw it 1.5% of the time, which is yes. like, a, it's like a rounding error. So, But interestingly, StatCast says he has a curveball and a slider, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and they've got kind of like the, the new little spin thing they've got they look different yeah i'm just not sure with that he has that 89 command i'm just not sure that he's very good at at producing those regularly do you think it's like a, a byproduct of 
him not really, like, especially the differences in the fastballs too, is there anything going on with him that you think is not by design in terms of how those pitches kind yeah. of are inconsistent? Yeah. That's that's what I'm talking about. I think that shows up in the command number, the 89 command number. I was watching some games where I was like, you know, oh, that looked like a curveball. And then, oh, that looked like a slider. And then I was like, did he want to throw that curveball? Like he's doing these things and the ball's spinning a different way and it's kind of like, yeah, that didn't seem like what he was trying to do in that instance. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, like you would normally think, oh, he'll throw more sort of back foot curveballs to lefties. And I remember seeing things that look like curveballs to righties. And I'm like, well, do you mean to do that? Or So anyway, I'm going to move Lamette down a little bit, honestly. I have a note there, down. Uh, the command is just way lower than everybody around him. Um, so I may move him more into the fifties. The people's sleeper, but not uh, not our sleeper here on on this show. Not necessarily. No. And again, sleeper being a relative term, he's shooting up the draft board, and I think has that shot at cracking the top one hundred by the time we get to March. Uh, anybody else uh, on your radar late or even in the mid rounds? Just pitchers that you clearly like more than most other people at this point. Oh, well, just late. Uh, I love late sleepers. Uh, Austin Voth just showed up as having a near elite command number and basically an average uh, stuff number. And so, you know, in national in the Nationals world, it's like Joe Ross is the fifth starter, but my lord, Joe Ross. <laughs> yeah, there's there there are a few ways that can yeah. not work out. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then obviously Corbin Burns, man, uh, he has the best stuff number, you know, south of 100 on my list. And the command number is 95. So like we've talked to Corbin Burns to death and I don't want to give him too much helium because there's obvious flaws and there's, you know, the fastball and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, they're going to give him another shot, don't you think? They kind of have to. And whether they keep him stretched out as a starter if he doesn't you know, end up in the rotation to begin the season or if they want to use him in relief, that might be the kind of thing that really hurts his fantasy value for this season. Mm-hmm. I, I can see the case for him being a multi-inning reliever and just just crushing people out of the pen. It be, like, it'd be pretty amazing to start a game with Brett Anderson and then and go like one or two times through the order and then Corbin Burns comes out of the pen. Like that, I couldn't think of two people who are more different. Yeah, I mean, you've you've got the you got the opposing team kind of on their back foot playing their lineup against a lefty, lefty and, sinker baller, lefty sinker baller, and you come in with Burns with high velocity, high spin breaking stuff. Yeah, and and, I, and it to, it could be true behind Eric Lauer too. So you have actually got two situations where he'd be an interesting guy to come in off the play off the bench. Um, so that's why I don't want to get too excited about him because they do have five without him and we have a demonstrated, um, there's gotta be flawed. I mean, you don't have a season that bad without, like, there's gotta be something flawed about his fastball. Yeah. The hit, tipping in a big way could be, you know, part of what's going on with him too. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I was I was surprised like everybody else that things unraveled on him as much as they did last year. And then there's always Freddie Peralta too, not to go all Brewers at the end of this segment, but they're they're relying on a mix of young guys like Burns and Peralta, you know, Josh Lindblom coming back over 
from the KBO. Brett Anderson to chew up some innings, maybe in the Miley role from a couple of years ago. They're kind of trying to run it back the same way, but if they get unexpected growth, or maybe internally it's expected growth, but if they get steps forward from one of Burns or Peralta, that changes the look of the rotation very quickly. With Peralta, I mean, there's your true two-pitch guy. At least that's what he's been so far in the big leagues. Apparently, a third pitch was coming along in winter ball. You know, we have to see him throw it and throw it a lot with confidence before we can really trust he's going to use it in games, though, right? Yeah, yeah. And to me, like, he just seemed to, like, have a lot of success coming out of the bullpen. I mean, I'm not looking at splits right now, but is that, am I a crazy person on that one? No, he was one of those guys that the first inning was just a debacle so many times that it got to a point where I think the Brewers were messing with his pregame routine and trying to figure out something that would get him to have more success just coming right out of the gate. As a reliever, he had a 401 ERA and, uh, you know, 13 strikeouts per nine, uh, regular home run rate. I think I think he might be a reliever, dude. I think I think we need to stop talking about him. All right, so you <laughs> you would, you're obviously going to throw your dart if you're throwing a dart at one of the two young Brewers. You're throwing it at Corbin Burns instead of Freddie Peralta. <laughs> it's so hard to do coming off the season that Burns just they had. just both they both had nutty seasons. Yes, I am. Okay, well, that's that's understandable. I'm doing that. Um, let me see who else is interesting uh, low on my list I guess I can't quit Jorge Peralta it's very upsetting no? no I can't quit him um, not Jorge Peralta Jorge Lopez Jorge Lopez yeah yeah. Jorge Lopez has an above average stuff number and above average command number if you break his pitches into pieces they all look good I think he could at very least be their closer of the future. I'm not going to spend any money on him. But, but a reserve in my, pick. In my very deepest leagues, he might show up again. Um, Tony Gonsolin's going to have to move up, but he had average stuff and below average command. But, um, you know, that I think that in, in, in L.A. and with more opportunity, that could be good. It's kind of hard, actually, near the bottom. Like, there's a reason. Okay, here's a weird one. Let me just give you a weird one. Alex Cobb. Whoa, that is weird. I don't understand it, uh, but both his command and stuff numbers just pop off the page where he is. 107 stuff, 112 command. I mean, uh, one thing I do know is he got the split finger back. The thing is back. That's just that like that is the biggest dart throw of all time. I don't want to really associate my name with him. <laughs> <laughs> I do have an edit button on this thing. No, I know, I know, but I just wanted to say like I have him in I have him at 160 because of that. There's no other reason. That's the only reason I have him there. Uh well, there's two reasons. The thing is back and the numbers are okay. I I you know, I I don't think we should forget that he was really good at one point. He was. There's there's proof that it can be done. Uh, and there's obviously opportunity there. That's The opportunity is what makes Jorge Lopez, at least in draft and hold, why not? Like Take take your shot and after the 40th round. like He could 
put some pieces together. And if, if the fallback is the bullpen, I mean, Ian Kennedy seems like the kind of guy the Royals would pretty happily trade at some point this oh, season yeah. just to open up that spot and save some money, even if they can't get someone to take the entire and contract. And other than Kyle Zimmer, there's almost nobody in that pen. Is Greg Holland back with the Royals? My God. Always. <laughs> Greg Holland had one of the best closer seasons of all time. Yep. <laughs> in 2013, he had 47 saves with a 1-2-1 ERA, a .87 whip, and 14 strikeouts per night. Pretty amazing. We were talking about Fernando Rodney the other day, too, and just how ridiculous his season with the Rays was. Those can come out of nowhere. I think this year, my my closer strategy is I'm a little bit off of the, the top closers in the game. I'm going to go back to my old closer strategy of, you know, here's some big arms that I like and have an opportunity. So I think we should extend pitcher week into Tuesday and then focus a lot on closers on the Tuesday episode since we ended up talking a lot about that trade and Paxton and sleeper yeah. starters and everything that we like. Um, one other name I want to throw at you. We talked about it a few weeks ago with the Braves situation. And I think you said something about Kyle Wright's stuff and command numbers being kind of mediocre. Bryce Wilson is still the young starter in Atlanta uh, that I, I like. I, I mean, Ian Anderson probably has the, the brighter future if you had to go off the reports right now. But I think Bryce Wilson's the guy that pops up to have the most value of the young Atlanta starters outside of the Max Freed range, of course. We're talking about the, the cheap ones. He's the guy that I want. Bryce Wilson is the guy that I want to take that chance on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Bryce Wilson has 94 uh, command uh, stuff, 105 command, and Wright has uh, 100 stuff, 91 command. So it becomes a question of like, what you want out of a guy, you know? Mm-hmm. Neither one has anything that's really stand out except for Wilson's command in this situation. And the interesting thing is if we, if we are setting 90 as sort of a bottom for command for starters, you know, that might have something to do with why Kyle Wright has struggled so far. And I think with Wilson just being so young that I'm, I'm willing to take the chance that the stuff could still come along a little bit further and catch up. You know, the command's a good foundation. If the stuff gets better, he picks up some velocity, you know, re- refines a breaking pitch. That could be the thing that kind of pushes him up to that level where he starts to uh, get big league hitters out consistently enough to lock down that fifth starter spot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, what you said earlier, too, about that Astros rotation and Urquidy looking safe in, in the fourth spot, he has equal uh, above average stuff in command, and that's why he's 50th on my rankings, and and I'm pretty excited about him. I'm surprised that he hasn't showed up when people do, you know, people were some of people on the piece were doing like, you know, minus ADP and stuff, and I'm surprised he hasn't showed up as one of my favorites. But he is one of my favorites, so I know that's not a deep sleeper like we're talking about, but that's that's the kind of player I'm looking for. Yeah, Urquidy is definitely a guy that I'm going to have on a few rosters this year. I like that setup for him and the skills. We talked about him as a prospect of the week, I think, last season. Mm -hmm. Um, Skills have been there pretty consistently as he's moved through the Astros system. As always, you can reach out to us via email, ratesinbarrels at theathletic.com. If you'd like to hit us up with the mailbag, just be sure to spell out the word and if you do that. 
We have two other fantasy baseball podcasts running this season, Fantasy Baseball in 15, every weekday morning. Al Melkier, Michael Beller, and myself are getting you all the news you need to know in a quicker format. And then, of course, the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast. New episodes of that drop Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. Pitcher Week continues with Closer Talk on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening.